in the well-known book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, this story, five lucky children who found a golden ticket are invited to explore a magical chocolate factory owned by Willy Wonka. There is also a promise of a special prize for one of the five children. And as we go through this story, we come to find that these five children are actually being tested by Wonka to see who will end up taking over the factory. As part of the test, Wonka gives each of the children an everlasting gobstopper and makes them promise to never give it to anyone else. As this story progresses, we eventually see four of these five children respond wrongly to the rules and instructions given by Wonka over and over and over again. And four of these five children are eliminated from the factory as they break the rules and get themselves nearly killed in the process. Even the main character, Charlie, the only child who isn't spoiled or rich, ends up breaking a few rules himself, though he doesn't get kicked out for it. But as we come near the end of this story, only Charlie is left standing. But because he broke the rules, Wonka tells him that he is to leave and he'll get nothing at all. He isn't going to get anything because of his breaking of the rules. As Charlie prepares to leave with nothing, he does something unexpected. He gives Mr. Wonka the everlasting gobstopper that he received from earlier on. And this small gesture from Charlie signals to us that he recognizes that he deserves nothing. He knows he was in the wrong. And so he returns the everlasting gobstopper instead of keeping it or selling it off. And as it would churn out, this is exactly what Wonka was looking for. He was looking for someone with this kind of humility, someone who would willingly acknowledge their wrongness and own it. And so Wonka tells him in the end that he passes the test and that he is now to inherit this chocolate factory. We learn from this story that the one who inherits is the one who first knows that they are undeserving of it. And as we come back to Mark chapter 10 this morning, this well-known story, in a sense, captures where we've been and where we're going. Unlike Charlie, who recognizes his unworthiness at the end and the presence of Mr. Wonka, we have encountered many people in Mark with the exact opposite demeanor. These people act as if they are something big, as if they are deserving of everything, and that they are worthy enough to ask Jesus to do something for them. The last time we were in Mark, we saw this exact attitude from James and John in verses 35 and 36. They approach Jesus with this attitude of entitlement as they ask him to do whatever they want. And as we go back just a few more verses, as 
it would turn out there's also the rich man who thinks that he is somehow worthy or can somehow merit eternal life from Jesus. But as it would turn out, as we go back even a few more verses, what people are seeking, eternal life, inheriting the kingdom of God, can only be inherited by becoming like children. It's important for us to remember what children represented here and what they pictured in this society. Children were at the bottom of society. They were completely helpless, needy, and dependent upon their parents for everything. Everything that the child received was completely unearned. It was freely given. And my guess is for the children in this room here this morning as well, my guess is that your parents don't make you pay for the food that you eat every day. My guess is your parents don't make you pay rent or for the clothes that you're wearing here this morning. You received it completely free. It was unearned. It was given to you. And I think this is exactly the key to understanding what Jesus is saying here. Those who would inherit the kingdom of God must first recognize that it is completely undeserved and unearned. Just as Charlie realized he didn't deserve anything from Wonka, so we must recognize the same of the kingdom of God. We can't do anything to merit. It's unearned and freely given to us. It comes from being in relationship to the king, Jesus, who is over the kingdom. Those who inherit the kingdom of God are those who recognize that they don't deserve it, but it comes through relationship to Jesus. And this morning we get to see this reality demonstrated beautifully in the story of blind Bartimaeus in Mark 10, 46 through 52. So if you haven't already, please turn to Mark 10, 46 through 52, and please follow along as I read the last miraculous healing of Jesus in Mark's account. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up. He's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, the blind man said to him, I want to see. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he could see and he began to follow Jesus on the road. As we come back to Mark 10 here this morning, we remember that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. This is where he's going, where he's been heading. And with every step 
approaches his impending death on the cross. And now he's just coming to Jericho, a stop along the way to Jerusalem. Now, as Jesus comes to Jericho, nothing is really said at all about it. He comes and then he leaves. He leaves with a crowd of people following behind him. And that's about it, except for the one thing that Mark makes sure to include right here. While they are departing Jericho, we are told by name of a blind beggar by the side of the road, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Now, Mark rarely includes the names of people who are healed in the gospel. And whenever he does include such a detail as this, we, we kind of have to wonder why. Why is this blind beggar named? I mean, we don't really know anything about this guy, except that he's blind and he's a beggar and he's the son of Timaeus. Why mention his name? And I think there could be at least a couple different reasons why Mark names him here. Perhaps the early church knew who this man was, and so maybe Mark wants to say, this is how Bartimaeus came to know and follow Jesus. What an amazing story. But secondly, perhaps Mark wanted us to pay close attention to this individual who has the honor and privilege of being named in this healing account. Perhaps this is Mark's way of cluing us in to really look closely, to pay attention, look at the details here. And I think that's what he's doing more or less in naming this man. Look closely to him, watch him. So as we continue forward, we want to do so with this special attention to Bartimaeus. And as we find out Bartimaeus, this blind beggar, finds out that Jesus, the Nazarene, not just any Jesus, as there may have been many, but Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he's most likely heard wonderful and great things about Jesus. So he begins to cry out loudly, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he's crying this out at the top of his lungs. Now what he says here is significant. And as we've been going through Mark, we've been encountering different views of who Jesus is. Some believe Jesus to be nothing more than a good teacher, as the rich man professed just a few verses back. Others believe Jesus just to be a common man, as the people of Nazareth believed. Still others believe Jesus to be the reincarnated John the Baptist, as King Herod did, and still others believed him to be Elijah, and I wonder this morning what you make of Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? Well, as we look at what this blind man says, Bartimaeus, we learn that he believes Jesus to be the son of David. He believes him to be the son of David. Now, we have to know at least a little bit of the background and history of the Jewish people to understand what's being said here. And I think Aaron really helped us last week as he covered a genealogy at the end of Ruth that eventually traced all its way to David. To David. 
And as we come from, to learn from reading the Old Testament, we recognize that God promises to raise up a Savior, a Messiah, through the line of David to save his people. This man would be their Messiah. He would be the Christ. So whether or not this blind man fully realizes the implication of his words, he is identifying Jesus as that Messiah, the promised Messiah of God from the line of David. This is incredible. It really is. For he's a blind beggar who can't see. And yet here he is, seeing clearly who Jesus is. This is the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one of Israel. Up to this point, there's only been one other person who's gotten his identity right. And that was Peter back in chapter 8, verse 29, where he says, you are the Christ. But remember, this is one of the 12 disciples we're talking about. Not a blind man who's never seen Jesus do anything or all of his works. He's only heard about it. And he's been able to identify who he is. Well, the crowd doesn't view Bartimaeus is crying out this truth as an impressive thing at all, right? In fact, the text tells us that they start to rebuke Bartimaeus and they start to scold him for crying out to Jesus. No doubt they believe that Jesus doesn't have time for the likes of a lowly beggar. Now, I don't know about you, but when there's a lot of people telling me to be quiet for being, you know, too loud or, or causing a ruckus, I tend to be embarrassed. And I'm sure we've had those moments where our phones go off at the worst possible moment, whether that's in class or church or a funeral or something like that. It just feels bad. And we try to quiet ourselves as quickly as possible. I don't want people glaring at me. I don't want people to judge me or feel the rebuke or scorn. But as this blind man is rebuked by the crowds strongly, what happens? He doesn't quiet down. He doesn't slow his speech. He doesn't give in to the demands of the crowd all around him. But instead, he cries out all the more defiantly. He cries out to Jesus with all of his might. He despises the public shame just to even have a chance just a chance of Jesus hearing him. As we've gone through Mark, this isn't the first time we've seen people try to hush or rebuke those who they didn't believe worthy of Jesus' attention. If we look back up to verse 13, not too many verses back, we remember that the disciples, like the crowd, were rebuking the parents of children who brought them to Jesus, much like this crowd is rebuking Bartimaeus. In this society, as we've already mentioned, children were viewed as a nuisance. They were at the bottom of society. They were certainly not worth Jesus' time in the minds of the disciples. But we remember, right, what happened. Jesus strongly and in righteous anger rebukes his disciples from keeping the children from him. 
He won't have any of that type of behavior from his disciples. For the kingdom of God belongs to those like these children who know that they are needy, dependent, and undeserving. And so knowing how Jesus responded just a few verses ago gives us a clue as to how he is going to handle this situation right here with blind Bartimaeus. For Bartimaeus has something in common with the children that he just spoke of a few verses ago. He recognizes that he's at the bottom of society. He recognizes that he is undeserving as he shouts for mercy. Have mercy on me. He recognizes that he desperately needs Jesus and his crying out loud despite the opposition proves it. So how does Jesus respond to those who see their dire need for him? How does he respond to one that is as low as his blind beggar? How does Jesus respond to those who are at the bottom of society? Jesus stops. He stops. At the call of this blind beggar, he stops. Now remember, there are a bunch of people following behind him as he is at the head of the crowd. So for Jesus to stop would have most likely stopped all the people behind him from moving as well. It would have been perhaps inconvenient, but he doesn't care. At the cry of Bartimaeus, Jesus stops to hear his cry, and then he tells him to come. Call him to me. Jesus always responds to those who are seeking him, those who are looking to him as their only hope, and he answers. He doesn't show partiality. And it's interesting to note that as Jesus calls this man, the crowd's attitude suddenly changes. Whereas they were condemning and seeking to hush him, now they offer words of encouragement to him. Have courage. Get up. Go. Jesus is calling you. Jesus has welcomed you. And so as they realize Jesus welcomes this man, so they welcome him. So Bartimaeus responds. And we're told that he throws off his cloak. He jumps up and he goes to Jesus. We're given the impression that he doesn't waste any time at all. Jesus has called him, and so he goes full speed into his presence. So Bartimaeus comes into his presence, and then Jesus asks, What do you want me to do for you? It's interesting that, that he asks this question here. I mean, does he really need to ask, What do you want me to do for you? It's evident to all that he's blind. So why does Jesus ask this question here? I think he does for a few reasons. But in the immediate moment, I believe that Jesus wants to give this man an opportunity to express his faith. If Jesus doesn't ask this question, we want to have the opportunity to see Bartimaeus fully evidence his faith by asking Jesus to do only that which he can do. Give him sight and heal his blindness. And in this beautiful moment, we get to see the blind man do exactly that. 
Bartimaeus expresses his faith in Jesus, the Messiah. So I think this is why Jesus asked this question first. But then second, I think Jesus asked this question to teach his disciples an important lesson, a very important lesson that we'll circle back to in just a bit. But before we do, as we've seen time and time again in Mark, when those who approach Jesus in humility and in faith look to Jesus as their only hope, he saves them, no matter who they are, no matter what social status or position. All are precious in his sight, from the least to the greatest. And he makes this clear as he says to Bartimaeus, go, your faith has saved you. As we've seen many times throughout Mark, Jesus heals in connection to the person's faith in him. For without faith, we cannot be healed in the ultimate sense. And so as we see Jesus heal Bartimaeus, he does so in connection to his faith and trust in Jesus. And so it helps us understand the greater reality of salvation for those who place their faith and trust in him alone. Now, as we've seen many people healed up to this point in Mark, what we normally expect is for the healed individual to go their way and then we never hear of them again. But this case is different. This case is different. For instead of going his own way, what does Bartimaeus do? He takes it upon himself. He goes after Jesus. He follows him. Jesus heals Bartimaeus, and then Bartimaeus, in response, follows Jesus. A beautiful response to the work of Christ, and the only one that we find in the account gospel of Mark. So as we contemplate this story further here this morning, what, what are we to learn? How, how are we to respond to the text? And I think much of what we learn from blind Bartimaeus really comes from comparing and contrasting him with several of the other characters that we've seen earlier in chapter 10, specifically James and John, and then also the rich man. Well, we saw questionable behavior from these characters earlier on in chapter 10, we find Bartimaeus responding in ways that Jesus commends in which Mark highlights. And I think that Mark invites us again to pay careful attention to Bartimaeus's actions and response and then to contrast it with James, John, and the rich man that have just followed. Especially since Jesus asked Bartimaeus the exact same question as he did James and John just a few verses back. What do you want me to do for you? The exact same question. So as we look at how we should respond to this count, again, I believe we are supposed to do so in contrast to James, John, and the rich man, which took place right before this. So with that being said, as we look at this account, we respond first by approaching Jesus rightly. This is what we learn. 
Most recently, we've seen James and John approach Jesus right before this. And as we've already mentioned, they approached Jesus with an entitled and deserving manner. They come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Give us a blank check of sorts. And contrasted with James and John's approach to Jesus, we see that Bartimaeus does not come with a deserving attitude or one that says, I'm somebody worth doing something for, but instead comes recognizing that if Jesus does anything at all for him, it will be purely his mercy and his grace. He recognizes that he has no claim on Jesus. He recognizes that what he asked for, he doesn't deserve. He instead casts himself upon his mercy and grace. And Jesus responds. So Bartimaeus teaches us a right approach to Jesus. We must come humbly seeing our need for him as children see their need for parents. So as we evaluate our own approach to Jesus, even here this morning, do we come to Jesus with a deserving, prideful spirit about us as if Jesus owes us favors or things? Or do we instead come to Jesus in humility and desperation, recognizing that anything good we receive at all in this life is purely his mercy and grace? Even as we evaluate our own prayer life, do we approach God pridefully as if he is someone there merely to fulfill our wishes or our requests, like a genie? Or in our prayers, do we recognize our dire need of his mercy and grace? Make no mistake, we are weak, beggarly sinners in need of God's grace and mercy each and every day, all of us. And we must approach him with this kind of recognition that Bartimaeus does. Our best days and our worst days, our need for his grace remains the same. So children, parents, grandparents, married couples, singles, in our approach to God, we must recognize our dire need for his mercy and grace each and every day, for without it, we can do nothing. It's only through Christ we can do anything good. We are not those deserving of anything good, yet God has seen fit to give us the most precious treasure of all, his son. Second, we learn from this account the right request of Jesus. The right request of Jesus. Once more, we compare the request of Bartimaeus with James and John's requests, and we find the two very different. James and John, when asked this question, what do you want me to do for you, ask for prestigious positions of power and authority, to sit on his left and his right. Their hearts and minds are consumed with a worldly idea of greatness, and so they ask Jesus exactly for that. We could say that this worldly notion of greatness 
has blinded them to the true mission and calling of being Christ's disciple. So when we see this blind beggar come to Jesus and ask to be able to see once more, we recognize that this is exactly what the disciples need too. They need to be cured of their spiritual blindness. For while they are seeing in part, they are not clearly seeing Jesus's mission or its extension to them. I think this is in part why Mark includes two stories, not just one, two stories of Jesus healing blind men. If you recall from just a couple chapters ago, chapter 8, we remember that Jesus healed the first blind man in a very, very odd way. He heals him in two stages. The first stage, by spitting on his eyes. You can't get that image out of your head, someone spitting in your eyes. And yet this is what he does. And through this first stage of healing, that blind man can kind of see. He sees figures or things like trees, but his vision is not clear yet. He's still technically blind, though he can see something. This picture is where the disciples currently are in their walk with Jesus. They recognize him as their Messiah, but they are not seeing the true implications for their life. They are partially blind, captivated by worldly greatness. But then Jesus fully heals the man afterwards in the second phase of healing. And we come to realize this is exactly what Jesus' disciples need. They need to be able to see him clearly, all of him. And so what they need is exactly what Bartimaeus is requesting. Sight. Not just physical sight, but spiritual sight. They need to be cured of their spiritual blindness. And so just as Jesus was Bartimaeus' only hope for sight, so he is the only hope for the disciples and for us here this morning. We need Jesus' help to see clearly and rightly our calling, our mission, and our purpose, for we are often blinded by the cares of this world. We are consumed with what this world loves and treasures, much like James and John. And while we often fail to see clearly what we must do over and over and over again, is fix our eyes on Jesus, our hope. So let us with eyes of faith look to Jesus and adopt his mission as his disciples, lest we lose sight and adopt the world's agenda instead. Last but not least, we learn the right response to Jesus. As we mentioned in the beginning, we remember that many people have come to Jesus, but not all have responded rightly to him. Whether it was their lack of faith or belief or understanding of who Jesus is, we have seen many turn away from following Jesus. Specifically, the rich man in verse 21, who was invited to follow Jesus, but then he tells him to sell all his riches and give it to the poor first. In other words, abandon all that you have and follow me. 
And tragically, he holds on to his riches. He doesn't let go. He doesn't go after Jesus, for his riches are too important, too loved, too prized. His riches were more valuable to him than following Jesus. But here, once more, we find Bartimaeus casting aside all that he has as he goes after Jesus. He does so eagerly and quickly as he throws off his cloak and goes to him. And we're given the impression that he doesn't look back. He doesn't go back for his cloak. He goes after Jesus. And where the rich man failed to inherit the kingdom of God, we find one leaving all else behind, going after Jesus. And so we're invited into the same response here this morning. We are called by Jesus to make him the most important thing about us, to love and cherish him supremely, to be his disciples. But this also means that everything else must be secondary to our love for God. So for those of us here this morning, do we see Jesus and value him above all? Do we see him as our greatest treasure? Or is there instead some competing idolatrous affection or desire, like the rich man? And if so, I encourage you in love to turn from these and repent. For only Jesus can truly satisfy our souls. But he will not do so while we flirt with other idols of our own making. He demands our heart's devotion above all. And he will not tolerate being second. So once more, let us respond to Jesus by approaching him in humility and asking that he would help us see clearly his infinite value and worth. May we make his name great.